So, well, I've been sitting on this for ages. Like, here's here's my idea. I'm going to do this right now, and you're going to do the same thing, I guess, on your computer. I mean, I could screen share, but that's probably cumbersome. I'm just going to call up Sydney Morning Herald website because I've been I've been noting, you know. There's an issue of the day. You know, we tackle the issues of the day on this podcast. And <laughs> the issue of the day for the last six months or something has been um, the Ukraine. Yeah, your, your new favourite topic. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's true. Yeah. Because <laughs> I get like a little bit sniffy about, you know, like, oh, people who've only just heard that Ukraine existed. But it's not really like I've been focusing very much on it uh, previously ever, despite being extremely opinionated about it, uh, as, as you would expect me to be. No, so, nothing less. Indeed. But, I mean, we both noticed, I remember talking about this, as soon as this war started, the Guardian website, which we both peruse from time to time, you more than me, I think, uh, you know, we did an episode relating to the Guardian before, the Guardian website became just like Ukraine propaganda central. Uh, I, I don't know what it's looking like now. I might just have a quick squeeze. But for months... Um, certainly the UK edition of The Guardian kept this up slightly longer than the Australian edition. But like the, the first thing you had, like if you load the, the Guardian UK edition page, um, you had like a huge, this is now, they've now dropped it down, but you would get like a huge number of Ukraine stories. And that would be what it would lead with. And that lasted for like two months. And like absolutely histrionic, like super, super uh, biased, let's say, towards the Ukrainian side. Local news media in this country, uh, you know, are Fairfax newspapers, which historically have been the more left-wing Australian newspapers, but have been kind of corporatized and, and kind of dewokeized in recent years. So they were acquired by the television channel, Channel 9. I believe that's currently who owns Fairfax still. Is that right? That's right. Uh, yeah. So there, it's, it's not, it's a bit less. And actually the pattern for months has been that they would have a single article every day on Ukraine. And I thought, because they're not quite as crazy, they're more of a kind of like middle of the road crazy that you expect to see uh, when it comes to Ukraine and the Western media. So, I mean, I'm sorry, I haven't got your permission buy-in for this at all, but like my thought is we would go to the Sydney Morning Herald website, we would get, scroll down, find their single Ukraine article, and then uh, we would talk about it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, but it may be that there's not one because actually I've been thinking about this for months, but in recent, yeah, there's zero. So I've just done the find function on the City Morning Herald front page, like zero jack shit about Ukraine. So because it, the Ukraine has now been dropping off the agenda. So however, yeah, particularly in Australia, I think because if you, I looked at the Guardian's English front page this morning for reasons I can't recall, and it's still much more prominent than it, than um, it is here. Yeah, but that also I think is partly about the different the different um, kind of politico editorial stance of the the Guardian in the UK. The Guardian in the UK is and has been for for many years now like for whatever how long long this this fast been going 25 years has been the blairite newspaper yeah so it's been like very you know whatever r2p like neo-imperialist when it comes to you know war and the whereas australia the garden australia has had much it's its brand is being lefty you know in a much more dedicated way like yeah, it's, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's. I think that's right. It's, a, it's a, it has its all. It has its own significant problems, but it's a totally yeah. different strain of, uh, progressivism or left wingism. I guess you would say. Yeah, I think that's right, and therefore they're not as obsessed with Ukraine as the Blairites are. 
And I mean, it's also the geographical situation in Australia. But look, what I've done here, I've, I've gone into the world section. World. So we're going to see in their world news, they do, because if you click click on world, the world tab at the top. Here we go. Oh, yeah. Okay. So here's here it is. Here's the nonsense article. But you've really got to dig deep to find it. So I've done the find function. There's two mentions of Ukraine on the world page. And it's the same article twice. The, the article I'm talking about is dangerous beach season, in quotes, kicks off on Ukrainian coast laced with explosive mines. I'm immediately consternated about this, right? There's a, there's a great danger this will degenerate even more than usually into just me ranting. I mean, I mean, it, it, it does sound like that does seem like an ever-present danger, but... It's I completely don't see because I've just I've I've set up this entire theme. I mean, maybe I mean, do we need some kind of backstory with I mean, at least to some extent for the uh, listeners uh, in regards to your relationship to this to this conflict? Because I feel like my relationship, to this conflict. your 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 personal relationship with Ukraine. Because I feel like I feel like this in particular, perhaps even more than your spicy takes on Trump, may surprise some people. So maybe that is this. Is it necessary to have some at least some degree of backstory for this I mean, I reaction, really reaction or not? Uh, I, I could give a. I mean, I you know I don't have any relationship with the Ukraine <laughs> at all. Other than, you know, I I I have as you say opinions about Ukraine, which I would present um, as purely factual, neutral observations. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm even willing to go that far, but. Uh, so I, and I just had, so I just had my, my you know, more sober thoughts about Ukraine published today, the new issue of Telos, Summer 2022, issue one 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 issue 199 of Telos just came out today and um, has my piece Bleeding Ukraine in it, where oh, I lay I out some of my thoughts. I just, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine is very simple to very, to, well, maybe that's going a bit too far. But it's 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 a fairly simple situation, which has been like wholly dissimulated about by the Western media, largely I think because they don't understand even the basic facts about Ukraine. I mean, the basic facts about Ukraine, as presented in the Western media, is you know Ukraine is a country, Russia is a country, Russia has invaded Ukraine. That is bad. Like it is bad to invade countries like one country invades another and russia is a big country and ukraine is a little country i mean i remember seeing this this um you know guy ex-british squatty who'd gone off to die in in ukraine to to fight the russians who'd said he did, he'd gone because he didn't like bullies that was his entire explanation for going to to like kill kill and die in in I mean, ukraine I mean, wars have been fought over less I, I, well i don't know if that's true but <laughs> like the truth of this, which, you know, as laid out in great detail by Putin did the invasion, is that the, you know, longer history of this is Ukraine is a, the Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is the Russian word for a borderland. The Ukraine was a region of Russia, which broke off from Russia and declared independence. Um, and actually, like for the first time, 100 years ago. But you know, under under German sponsorship. This is going to be kind of a long history now, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm saying it's simple. But yeah, like, so that, you know, I mean, basically what happened, there was there were some people, there, you get people like this, you have people like this in the north of England, you have people like this in Western Australia, In you know, people who who are regionalists and want to say their part of the country should be independent. And this happened in, in this part, the Ukraine, this Western part of, Western, Southwestern part of Russia. And um, they achieved independence because, 
you know, the Bolsheviks, uh, when they took power in 1917, made peace with the Germans and gave like, you know, enormous tracts of Western Russia to Germany. And then they got a puppet government in the Ukraine. And then, you know, had this kind of anarchy and chaos of the Russian Revolution, Russian Civil War, which went on for like four years, in which the Ukraine kind of had like a semi-autonomous existence and then ultimately got bailed up into the Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union, um, you know, had a kind of divide and, and conquer approach to its regions. So, that you know, it, it and it, it was federalist and it was following, you know, good good kind of proto-Marxist-Leninist principles based in Austrian Marxism about the self-determination of nations. So they, they gave the Ukrainians their own state within the Soviet Union, which didn't really matter because it was a highly centralized country. And, yeah, they created this thing, the Ukrainian SSR, Soviet Socialist Republic, which then existed for, you know, 70 years. And then the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, despite the fact that everyone in every part of the Soviet Union, except for the Baltic Republics, voted for it not to fall apart. Uh, and then when it fell apart, you know, the Ukraine came into existence as a country. I should remember, actually, there's uh, another uh, story here, which is relatively important to understand Ukraine history, which is, of course, the Germans came and conquered Ukraine again in uh, 1941. And uh, the Ukraine, again, had a kind of semi-autonomous existence again uh, under German tutelage for a second time. Uh, because this, these these two events are very important, particularly the the second one, but also you know the, these this this meant that you know Ukrainians when when Ukraine became independent in 1991 from the Soviet Union, they could look back to their glorious past as a Nazi puppet and a German imperial puppet early in the 20th century and say, well, that's that's who we are. I don't know what else there is to say. Yeah, the Ukraine kind of like stumbled along as an as, a, as an independent country um, for 23 years. Uh, until the um, CIA-sponsored a takeover of the country um, there it by is. <laughs> some clients in 2014 in the so-called Maidan Revolution, which is now, I can't even think what it's called. The Ukrainians now call it like the the revolution of peace and friendship or something. I can't remember what, I, they, there's some ludicrous name the Ukrainians call it. I'm really going to get myself in trouble here, aren't I? Uh, but anyway... Yeah, so the the yeah the the um basically NATO in fact it's really the organisation that should should be mentioned here NATO um, did a coup to take over Ukraine which previously had been in the Russian sphere of influence, and I mean coups like a little bit confusing but like violent street protests that like you know like killed the police and took over the country. I think uh, I think it's it's important to like just take a moment at that point though like you know because I, a lot of this narrative is going to be unfamiliar to a lot of people right like this is going to come as, as news yeah um, which is not to say it's wrong but I, I guess there's there's two things here one is that it does seem as if you know i'm as suspicious and maybe not as suspicious but you know i'm extremely skeptical of the kind of current media uh, western media i should say western media approach to uh the conflict in particular the kind of insane warmongering sort of being presented as uh, some vision for peace, like just in, in terms of, especially in particular, those people clamoring for, you know, more arms and all this kind of stuff. That's fine. I mean, but I guess the next question, I think, I think we can all, it does appear as if, and again, you know more about this than me, but it does appear as if the quote unquote coup in 2014 did seem to have some fairly sketchy uh, people involved, including probably the CIA in some way. I guess the question, before we get to the article, which we should do, but I think even if we accept that there is some like pretty dodgy things going on, uh, there are some pretty dodgy things going on in the Ukraine, does that just, or I shouldn't say use the word justify, but sh does that necessarily 
justify, let's use the word, the invasion. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like a kind of, a, you know, a weak lettuce here, but th there is just a terrible loss of life going on in both oh, yeah. sides. And, and I, I, it seems, sorry to be a basic bitch, but th that seems bad. Yeah, sure. No, no, but I, I, I look. I don't think you need to apologise about that. Look, it's, it's the what is happening in, in the Ukraine currently. Uh, it, this war is absolutely horrifying. Like it is. Like it's it just, is, a, it's just a massacre. Like it's just it unbelievable. Is, thing. It is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to think we're we're looking at this point, late June, probably sixty thousand dead between, yeah, civilians and and soldiers, mostly military casualties. Uh, but maybe higher than that. Um, it, yeah, it's it's like it's, it's a kind of old school European war, like it's a meat grinder, kind of. Yeah, it is a meat grinder. I mean, it's actually you know, it has some cer certain novel aspects, but yeah, it's it's um very interesting the way that new technologies in this war have leveled out things. Um, so I mean, in particular, that you know, um, you know, the, the wars we've been used to seeing, uh over the last 30 years um, have been, you know, the wars the West has fought using um, overwhelming air power against, um, you know, places like Serbia and Iraq, which couldn't really fight back against it. Uh, and in this war, because the West has been supplying the Ukrainians with arms so profligately, it basically seems that um, the Soviets, although they have overwhelming air superiority, can't really use it that much because... Um, the the pres the number of man pads the um, that the Ukrainians have so that that kind of takes that out of the equation yeah but that takes out the equation and then has meant that um, it's it's mainly become an artillery war for most of it I mean the, the kind of initial kind of weeks were a bit crazier than this but the it's basically become an artillery war and that's I mean it's also partly partly because Australia uh, Australia Russians it's weird parapraxis uh russia's military doctrine like since the second world war has been artillery first like that's that's what russia does and that's what they're doing in ukraine it's also incidentally how because ukraine is um you know russia uh they're they're, they're russians with the same same uh, military history so they they have exactly the same military doctrine it's so it's a kind of artillery duel but like hopelessly uh, you know um in the russians favor mm. um yeah, I mean, look. So going going back to what you were saying, the um, I mean, look, you know, I got to twenty fourteen, but there's there's you know, the war is twenty twenty two. I mean, so there's eight years there, and what happened in those eight years is that. So I mean, you know, look, Ukraine historically, and you can look at the maps. It's 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 roughly divided this since the independence. Um, you know, or the the country that came into existence of Ukraine, which was based on this Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, orders of which were determined by, as I say in my Telos piece, the internal calculations of the Soviet state, not the decision to produce a cohesive independent state. But it, it's basically divided in twain between a kind of Ukrainian side and a Russian side. So, it, I mean, there's a lot of blurring in the middle. But you know, you look at the map of any the election results of any Ukrainian election, including in recent years, you basically see the east and the south of the country vote for one candidate, the west and the north vote for another candidate. If you look at the linguistic map, the west, the far west of the country speaks a language called Ukrainian, um, which is really a dialect of Russian um, by any reasonable standard, but a dialect that's quite aberrant, whereas the you know half the country speaks standard Russian. Yeah, that's, that's the Ukraine... Um, and 
when when the the so-called Maidan happened in in 2014, Maidan is the word for public square because of course that's where the the contestation of power occurred, particularly in Kiev, but in other other parts of the country as well. The uh, south and the east um, decided to leave the country, and this is because the incoming, you know, pro pro NATO uh, regime, which you know, I know, I should be clear about this. I mean, when I talk about the CIA, I mean, obviously, it sounds quite conspiratorial. I mean, I'm not saying that like. You know, literally, um, you know, five guys in sunglasses from Langley, Virginia, turned up and 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 toppled the government. The the it's 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 the fruit of a very long um, process of soft power, civil society sponsorship, and so on. And look, a lot of it was, I mean, I think really the the most crucial impetus for the Maidan revolution to happen was a kind of neoliberal incentive scheme that. People in Ukraine desperately wanted to be able to do what people in neighbouring Poland could do, which is go and go and work in London or Paris. You know, go and go and work in Western Europe by becoming members of the EU. They wanted to be Europeans because they wanted the economic opportunities. And, and Ukraine is a prodigiously poor country, like much poorer than Russia on a per capita income basis. Um, and because you know, U- Ukraine. Ukraine is a country which had the kind of destiny that Russia had immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union, which is it was immediately taken over by corrupt oligarchs who looted it. And this happened in, in all the post-Soviet states. But in Russia, over the, the 10 years after the end of the Soviet Union, um, you know, you had this new order under Vladimir Putin that coalesced, where you had the state security services um, putting in a strongman who then curbed the excesses of oligarchic corruption in Russia. That just never happened in Ukraine. So Ukraine's just remained like insanely corrupt. Yeah. So Ukraine, and consequently completely poor, like it just hasn't hasn't had a chance. Um, it, even that Russia's had, Russia's become much wealthier, you know, relatively in the last 20 years than it was um, in the kind of post-Soviet period, which was just a complete catastrophe. Uh, and Ukraine hasn't. Anyway, so people were desperate, economically desperate, and that, that produced a lot of support, generated a lot of support for this. But in the, the south and the west country, including, you know, large large cities like um, Kharkov and, and Odessa, people, um, you know, rose up to try to break away. And, um, you know, neo-Nazi death squads from uh, Western and not always Western Ukraine. Some of them were native to Eastern Ukraine, particularly the, the um, Azov Battalion, which was raised with me in, in Kharkov, which is historically um, the, the biggest Russian-speaking city, very pro-Russian historically in Ukraine. Um, yeah, these these gangs of, of neo-Nazi football hooligans um, basically moved into southern and eastern Ukraine and killed, um, you know, the the leading kind of pro-Russian activists. Uh, you know, the, I mean, and the, I mean, the, the reason for this, the reason for this that these people decided to to break away from Ukraine was that the incoming regime after the Maidan was going to suppress the Russian language, the, the native language of like half the population of Ukraine, which they've done subsequently. They've tried to Ukrainize the whole country, tried to make everyone speak Ukrainian, which is a foreign language, you know, to the extent it's a separate language at all, which I dispute. But um, yeah, they've, they've tried to, to turn, convert the whole country to Ukrainian speaking. Uh, but yeah, so these guys um, just, you know, brutally crushed these rebellions, uh, except in the furthest... Um, Southern and eastern, well, furthest eastern parts of the country in the Donbass, and particularly in the um, Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts, where um, you know people were. I mean, the, basically, the pro-Russian sentiment was so extreme. The the vicinity to the Russian border, and having assistance from Russians, was enough that they managed to create little independent states, which the Ukrainian armed forces have been unable to reconquer over eight years. Um, 
I think this is a this is this is good in that it, it, it speaks to a running theme of this of this podcast, which is, and I think and you've touched on a few of these things, but one and one that does not come up really at all in the in the Western media coverage of this is the extent to which many of these Ukrainian um, soldiers, at least in the you know Russia on the Russian borders, are you know explicitly neo-Nazi. And I think this is something that is just like totally ignored. Um, yeah. And like, regardless of what we think about, you know, the broader picture of of you know these this, these current events, I think we can conclude that certainly, and maybe this is a banal point, but certainly, uh, events on the ground are far far more ambiguous than they're presented uh, in the in the media, which I think is I think it's it's worth just hovering on that point. I mean, you know, as with all wars. You know, and, and I think some, I think maybe you said this to me earlier on, is that like the disparity between what is being reported, especially in the early days of the Ukraine war, the disparity between what is being reported and what was actually happening on the ground made me doubt every single account of war I had ever read. Because when this these kinds of things happen, especially this kind of war, you know, an artillery kind of an artillery war where, you know, men are just going to into this kind of meat grinder of combat. Um, no one has any idea what is going on ultimately. Um, those on the ground would, but those reporting on it just can't really get, get the required context. And as with all these big geopolitical things, no one really knows what it means, especially in the short term. Yeah, I mean, this is this is true to an extent. It's very important with this current conflict to try to be a little tempered in what one says because of the important because of the fog of war you know effect like we don't know what's going on that's the expression I was and thinking. yeah and it, it's um it's very hard because you have well actually this war it's it's very strange i don't know how this really compares to previous wars i mean what what you have is is there's two kind of sides of the story as there would be any any war with two sides but the 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 information is very asymmetric. I mean, it's it's asymmetric in the opposite way to the, the military situation. So the, the Ukrainian side just deluging with information have been since day one. Large portions of which are just bullshit. Um, but that's that's the war they're fighting. They're fighting a propaganda war, and it's very very important for the Ukrainians because, of course, their their great ace in the hole is support from the West. So it's really important for them to to kind of win a propaganda war directed at Western audiences. Um, Russia, obviously, like any country, needs to kind of um, package things appropriately for its home audience. But the, you know, the Russians are much less sophisticated there. And, and generally, they're, they're very secretive. I mean, this comes partly by the fact that the country's run by a spy. So where the, the Ukrainians are constantly publishing kind of ludicrously inflated figures about how many tanks they've destroyed and stuff, the Russians generally are just silent about this stuff. I mean, another really obvious disparity is the the fact that um, Ukrainian troops all just have their mobile phones with them and are constantly uploading pictures of the war crimes they're committing uh, and God knows what. Whereas Russian troops are not allowed to have phones. So, you know, they, they've had some exceptions. Uh, but, you know, in the initial part of the war, like, you know, we if, you, if you're on the internet, you'd have huge amounts, potentially volume of, of raw footage of fighting and stuff on the Ukrainian side, like literally nothing coming from the Russian side. Um, that kind of started to open up because the Russians started seeing the effectiveness and and there were certain, the Chechens had like an exemption and had mobile phones and were 
good at posting some really funny stuff. But I mean, the, the bottom line in the Western media is that, and okay, like, let's let's go to the article. Yeah, I, really I don't know like- if it's gonna if it's gonna. Um, I mean, the 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 thing that the Western media typically does is it just reports whatever you know the Ukrainian government has said, which is often like unhinged and crazy, as being factually accurate. And but they do say so. I mean, this is an, this but, is an amazing headline though. Just it's, yeah. It's quite so the da- dangerous. I mean, look, you know, I'll say it again. Always cautious with headlines. You know, I, I try struggle to remember this, but um, this this I've the byline says London, so I'm assuming this is yeah. It's from the Washington Post. Uh, scroll to the bottom. Like a lot of international coverage in Sydney Herald, it's actually culled from a foreign newspaper. Yeah. Um, the headline, yeah, headlines, because editors can change headlines. This may not even be the headline. This this article went to to post, to press with it in the Washington Post, um, and so you know you can't blame the journalists. But that dangerous beach season, <laughs> quote marks. Yeah, I mean that seems like an understatement. Um, maybe that's why it's got the scare quotes. Kicks off on Ukrainian coast, laced with explosive mines. Um, I guess I have to say explosive mines. Otherwise, do you think it was like coal mines or something? Which, like, I guess could be true. I mean, what I want to know is, I just, I just read that you know uh, Ukraine won't be able to host Eurovision next year because of the war. If that's the case, you know, if they can have beach season, surely they can have U- they can have Eurovision. Like, I this doesn't seem right to me. That's my contribution. I'm, I'm now fo- focusing on this this photograph, and I, I don't know what's going on here. Why is this? <laughs> This woman looking at this guy in this particular way, like he's looking very pleased with himself. She looks like slightly concerned. Very odd image. Um, apparently, this is in in Odessa, in the Ukraine. I don't know. I've got a lot of thoughts. Beach goes in Ukraine should watch out for hazardous mines that lie underwater. Ukraine's national guard warns after the death of a man who was diving in the Odessa region before a device exploded and killed him. So they're talking about sea mines. Of course, they could be talking about landmines. There was. Um, I've seen some videos of, of Russians clearing landmines that were laid on beaches in uh, areas that the Russians have now taken. I've got to start. Like, I anticipated this with the with the title, right? They say laced with explosive mines. This is, I mean, it's almost like a passive voice thing. Like, who has laced them? Who has laced the coast with explosive mines? And I am. They haven't said it yet, and I've I've got to think they're not going to say who's laid these mines. I'm going to scroll through. Mines are a growing problem someone's quoted here saying the Russians ruined our peaceful environment. I mean, that again, seems like a ludicrous understatement to describe a country invading you. But anyway, um, mines have become a challenge. It's, ah, uh, here we go. Halfway down. It's unclear which side's mine led to the death of a man in Odessa region. Ukraine has also planted landmines, but a suspected, and they say a suspected Russian mine washed up on the Ukrainian beach in Odessa region following storm. I mean, so this is what this is. I've just had the phrase hit me in my head, which is what I always the, the phrase that always spontaneously comes to my mind when I read stuff in the Western media about the Ukraine, which is this is hallucinatory nonsense. Like let's like, the, let's let's speak in concrete terms. What, what is what is what is your concern here, Kelly? The the Russians aren't mining shit. <laughs> like why the fuck? It, it it just absolutely defies belief. But this is an absolutely standard tactic, which is the Ukrainians. Much as they're now shelling uh, Donetsk and saying that the Russians are shelling it, despite it clearly being under Russian control, like again, like why? Oh, like so, why would the Russians be laying mines when they're invading a country? That's that's something you do. It's a defensive measure. So why is and so they're saying, oh, okay, a Russian mine has washed up on a beach. So what the Russians are, are, are laying mines in their waters? I mean, the Ukrainians don't have a navy. 
The Ukraine, I mean, a lot of this stuff makes sense if you believe some of the stuff in the media that seems to suggest that there's the Ukrainians might be launching credible offensive operations against the Russians. But it's just not true. I mean, the, the Russians are attacking Ukraine. Whatever you think about the morality of that, the Ukrainians have been laying mines all over the place, particularly on the coast, because they're worried the Russians, since the Russians have a reasonable sized navy in the Black Sea and the Ukrainians have jack shit that the Russians will do. And they've been really wise since the beginning because Odessa is like historically very pro-Russian, mm. um, despite how far west it lies. Indeed, very prominently in, 20, in, in, the, uh, in the 2014 Maidan, it was the um, scene of a particular outrage where um, a room, uh, a building full of um, Russian pro-Russian activists were, was burnt, the pro-Russian activists were burned alive. Um, so, uh, yeah, Odessa is an obvious, it's also an obvious target. It's a major military center. It's it's obvious, often been suggested that the Russians want to take the whole coast. I mean, there's a whole, you know, this whole thing, you know, the dangerous beach season kicks off on Ukrainian coast. I mean, the, even question of the existence of a Ukrainian coast at this point. Most of the, you know, pre-2014 coastline of the Ukraine is now not only under Russian military control, but has been incorporated into Russia or is in the process of being incorporated to become part of Russia one way or the other of the Donetsk People's Republic. So um, most of the Ukrainian coast is not Ukrainian coast anymore, but they do have like a bit still um, west of Kherson, so um, particularly around Odessa. Um, yeah, it's heavily mined. So, I mean, Odessa, there's like a huge, I'm just ranting, sorry. Odessa's like, it's a big deal. So, it, it, you know, I'm sure you may have heard of the fact that, you know, Ukraine is after Russia, like the biggest wheat supplier in the world. It's basically a huge wheat field. That's why the Germans annexed it. In, in, in 1918, 1917, whichever year it was, must have been 18 by the time they actually got their hands on it. Um, Russian, uh, German troops in 1918 actually went in and, and no, must have been 17. They, they harvested the, the wheat harvest um, because they were under tremendous pressure food-wise. Like, they just kind of stole it, uh, the, the, whatever the German military at that point was called. Uh, really rambling, apologise. So but it just is the port where all the wheat comes out, right? Okay, one reason, so they can't get wheat out of Ukraine currently because Ukraine has mined the port, because Ukraine was reasonably worried that the Russians would do an amphibious operation to take Odessa. Mm. Um, but yeah, the Ukrainians have basically completely blocked that off. So, okay, what is happening here is Ukrainians are getting blown up by Ukrainian ordnance. I mean, okay, you know, and that's sad. It's completely normal that they, of course, you know, the Ukrainians, Ukrainian officials should warn people not to go swimming around Odessa because they'll get blown up by mines. That's like perfectly normal. But like, yes, what exactly. is the story here? The story here is that the dastardly Putin is blowing up Ukrainians. Um, I mean, not really true. I mean, okay, you can claim that he's created the, as someone does, like, you know, he's ruined their peaceful environment by creating a hostile situation where previously they could go swimming and now they can't. The imputation here, and at one point, kind of, I mean, the, the way it's couched is very careful. It says it's unclear which side led to death the man in, Odessa, in the Odessa region. What does that mean? Well, it means like this journalist has not seen the serial numbers on that mine. There's no reasonable doubt, like, that what side's mine. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, the Ukrainians shouldn't have mined Odessa because they should be worried about people swimming, right? But the, the way it's, the whole couching of it is to, try and produce the impression that the Russians aren't only like creating a hostile environment, as, as this um, spokesperson puts it, but that they're directly killing. They directly killed this guy, um, which they can't claim. And there's, so there's this claim, they have this story, a suspected Russian mine has, has 
washed up the Ukrainian region, which I think is 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 beyond ludicrous, unless it's like from the Second World War or something. Okay, but what's the source? Oh, the Ukrainian military said that. Hmm. Okay, well that's not that's not a reliable source, right? And it's on Facebook as well. It's from the Facebook page of Operational Command South, the branch of the Ukrainian military. I shared a video of the drives being destroyed. I mean, I don't know. I think this is clearly an example of, as you say, like when you actually lay out the sort of the logic of how sea mines actually work, um, it, it, it sounds highly unlikely that uh, it would be uh, laid by Russia because, as you say, you know, mines are defensive. And indeed, in the last paragraph of this uh, of this article, it actually quotes Russian intelligence that says, uh, in March, the Bad Weather Corps had caused more than 400 naval mines, it said, were laid by Ukraine to become disconnected from the cables that were anchoring them. Russia said the devices were now drifting freely across the western parts of the Black Sea, a key trade route. Um, Ukraine dismissed Moscow's claims, accusing Russia of using alleged drifting weapons as an excuse to close off parts of the sea. And I think this just comes back to that broader point we're making. That this is, yeah, I mean, I, I completely accept what you were saying, Mark, but I also at the same time don't actually know either way insofar as people do all kinds of ludicrous shit in war on, on both sides. Um, and I think to me it clearly sounds as if defensive mines have drifted free and now they're blowing up their own citizens. Yeah. Um, and but, it's not even like, look, you know, that that could happen. It's not even like that implies like terrible Ukrainian negligence or something. I mean, maybe right. it does, but like, I don't know. I don't know how, how secure the anchored naval mines generally are. But yeah, like I, the Russian claim here is, I think, perfectly, perfectly credible. Um, I mean, Ukraine maybe, I mean, okay, maybe that that's like, may, I don't really understand. I mean, I guess what's the claim? The Russians are like doing a kind of scare campaign, not directed at Ukraine, because Ukraine can't do anything anyway. So it's like Ukraine, the Ukrainian shipping isn't coming out of Odessa because of like, you know, so there's Turkish ships, for example, caught in Odessa currently because they were moored there when the war started. And then they've been, the Ukrainians have mined behind them. So they're stuck yeah. in the port. Um, okay. Well, I mean, I guess the claim would be if we're talking about, I haven't looked at this this particular story before, but maybe they're claiming that like, you know, Romania and Bulgaria, like the countries, with with you know shores in the western black sea can't use the shipping which should, maybe the russians don't you know i mean they're they're nato members or whatever so russia's saying this to scare them and you know maybe i mean you know i, I think this is more interesting within the context of like the media, the western western media coverage of the conflict like you remember the early days when there was that kind of you know again regardless of um the where you sit on the war itself you know the reports coming from the Western media in regards to that. You know the the defeats that the Russians were experiencing. And you remember there was all this stuff about how they were running out of fuel and they were bogged down and all this kind of stuff. All of these report, initial reports in the first month or so of the war were clearly ludicrous because since that time, none of the things have really come to that, that were predicted have come to pass. Namely, that you know um, Putin had underestimated the. Uh, the Ukrainian defense, you know, blah 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 blah. And as the as the as the war continues, and as it becomes clear that Russia is actually like tightening the screws, um, that the the media coverage of it becomes much more ambivalent. And you can see it in the tone here, insofar as you know the the again that the ambiguities of an actual concrete war uh, become impossible to hide entirely behind just kind of you know ludicrous propaganda and here you've got a kind of, well i guess it's just a kind of cope mechanism really you have you have the you have the ambiguity of this conflict like deliberately kind of um presented in the media in a way that will still fit the kind of the narrative at the moment 
but mm. it becomes increasingly difficult for these facts to fit that narrative. Um, and I think that's really telling, and especially within the context of sort of other wars that have been fought within the last sort of, you know, 20 odd years. There's, there's, I mean, obviously grains of truth, you know, in the standard narrative. I mean, in particular, like, I think there were, there were like setbacks in the initial yeah. Russian advance. Yeah. Like there were things, things did get, you know, individual things got bogged down, but there was an incredible focus in, and I'm not sure so much about the media because I've really switched off the media. I mean, it's so, you know, but in terms of like Ukrainian, pro-Ukrainian, like social media, there's a huge focus on like highly, you know, like little individual instances that give you no strategic picture at all. So like, you know, there's like this famous footage of a Russian tank being like stolen by gypsies in a tractor um, during the invasion. <laughs> I think that's what turned out to be happening. I mean, certainly being towed by a Ukrainian tractor. Uh, well, as I say, certainly, but it's very unclear. I mean, one of the there's a systematic lack of clarity actually here because unless you're extremely um, tutored in these things, I mean, I can't tell the difference between Ukrainian and Russian military equipment. It's very, very hard to do because they use a lot of the same equipment. Like a yeah. lot of it's like Soviet era. Um, it's very, very hard to do. So I've got no idea whether that tank was actually Russian anyway. I mean, it could all be completely false, but it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't, the fact in a war, like someone loses a tank, like, or, you know, some people, there's like a, you know, people are going to get killed. Like you're going to have, you know, the, the fact that the Ukrainians have like conducted cer certain successful limited operations against Russian troops and killed Russian troops and blown up Russian tanks has like virtually zero strategic meaning. I mean, you know, I got in an argument with Nick Land on Twitter about this right right, right at the get-go because he was, he was very much, I've stopped, yeah, I haven't um, been, because I got rid of that Twitter account, I haven't been um, following lately but um yeah but yeah because nick nick was very on the like oh this is a catastrophe like straight away which is a standard media thing it's like oh the russians have totally fucked up like you know because they i mean it, it it started off very ludicrous it's like oh you know the, it's been a week and the russians haven't conquered the whole country yet what a bunch yeah. of losers he was just like yeah. well that's that doesn't really make even the slightest amount of sense like how long do you, it's just kind of hard to do like takes a while but then of course there was this very dramatic very sudden russian withdrawal from kiev i mean russia su surrounded kiev on like three sites and then they just completely withdrew uh and they, similarly in, in kharkov not they didn't withdrew quite as withdraw quite as much but to a large extent they withdrew um from around kharkov and um this really left people guessing i mean one of the the, the but again it's you have this problem the russians what did the russians say not much like russians were like because the russians never said what they were doing <laughs> like they never said they never said I mean, people are like you know, people got hysterical, were like, oh, Putin's going to capture Kiev. And then when he didn't, they're like, oh, Putin, Putin fucked up. He was going to capture Kiev. Putin never said anything about capturing Kiev, right? Like he never, never suggested it for a minute. All the Russians said is, oh, yeah, phase one's complete. We're doing phase two now, which is they're going to liberate the Donbass region, which obviously is like their, their key war aim from, from the beginning. Um, but like, I don't know what happened there. There's, there's at least, there's, there's three possible accounts here, right? There's um, the Ukrainian account, which is that the Russians were defeated in a triumphant battle for Kiev. Uh, were militarily defeated in the field and forced to withdraw, which is clearly just just not what happened at all. Um, it's very clear it's not what happened because it's very clear that the Russians withdrew and then like three days later, the Ukrainians moved into the positions the Russians have vacated. Like the Russians withdrew in good order. Um, it wasn't a forced retreat. They just decided to leave. Um, the other stories, like I, I actually lean towards the version that says the Russians thought that Kiev would just and Kharkov would just surrender. And when they didn't, they just said, well, we're not going to storm these giant cities it would yeah. be totally crazy. So they just said, well, there's no point in holding positions around them. We'll just redeploy our troops elsewhere, which is like a very sensible strategic thing to do, in my view. Um, but there's another line of thought, 
run by some quite sensible and knowledgeable people that says actually the entire attack was um you know designed to do what it did which is it destroyed a whole bunch of stuff and um you know forced the ukrainians to move troops around and it was just part of a more that was always going to be focused on the Donbass. As I, say, I don't really believe that, but a lot of people who are fairly sensible say at least, at least kind of like, I mean, it's a little bit kind of uh, Putin's playing 3D chess, but it's at least not totally implausible. I think this is, this is because obviously you're following totally, because I still only follow, as it's becoming abundantly clear, I only follow this conflict in the mainstream media. And so you're exposed to things and information and details that I just do not have, inf- I do not have access to. Um, and nor do I want access to because that's just too much of a rabbit hole for me. Like it's just, it's, it's just for me, it's out of sight, out of mind. Although obviously, not following these things is always the advised position. Like my the extent <laughs> to which, yeah, the extent to which I follow this stuff is uh, the the great excuse for this obsession for me has been like oh, I actually kind of professionally wrote something about it, you yeah. know. So, but then like I became really that led to me becoming way more preoccupied because I'm like, well, I've got a piece coming out in in print, so I now need to know everything because I got to cover all the bases. Yeah. So, but there's not much, I mean, actually the war became very boring very quickly. I mean, the first week was very, very exciting, all this kind of crazy stuff happening. And that's one reason the West just turned off. Like as a, as an entertainment product, this war has stopped delivering completely. Um, There's nothing entertaining about this war anymore. It's just people dying. And um, very, very, and it's like, you know, as you said, it's like, it's an old school, I mean, it's not quite first world war, but like a little bit trench based warfare very slow positional movements yeah. um you know and I, i'm keenly exposed to these you know the maps where like a tiny chunk goes and people they, people understand you know people who know what they're talking about i think understand this is very important and strategically significant but it's very hard to actually get excited about maybe um, i've read too many war memoirs in, in in my time but i find myself i find myself just desperately sad about the whole situation just desperately desperately sad i don't think that i think the triumphalism that comes from the western media is kind of despicable uh and you know you saw it in i mean speaking of the you speaking of you know the british guardian um you know you saw it with iraq you see it again now um uh, but i also at the same time think you know despite all of the all of the probably quite real or at least half half true uh, concerns about you know the CIA's involvement with with the Ukraine and, and just America's involvement with Ukraine in general and indeed the worrying kind of uh, economic effects of the EU and, how, and all those kinds of things. I just find it terribly hard to have an opinion on it other than just deep sadness about the loss of life and all the poor fuckers who are either dead, maimed. Uh, or in the mud suffering. I, I just, that's, yeah. I don't, again, maybe that's a banal thing to say. No, it's the correct I, response. I find it but very this, hard to think beyond that point. This, no, it's 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 heartbreaking. It's it's tragic, genuinely tragic, um, in in a, in, a, in a real sense. It's um, yeah, it's horrendous. So, uh, and there's not, there's, I mean, the the only, I mean, the, the only thing I can think is well, something else should have happened. But it's very hard to. Um, I mean, I you know now we get very philosophical, but I don't you know I don't believe that you know other worlds may be possible in the future, but the the world we have is the world we have. Um, and look, I, you know, I think uh, to make another political point though here, um, which is much brighter than the point you're making actually, but 
you know, the, the reason this war is going on the way it's going on is that it's a war directed from Washington. The, you know, Zelensky is not, you know, this, <laughs> this ludicrous kind of clown hero of the Western media is not, is not in charge. He doesn't have the ability to, um, I mean, my God, I mean, here's something that I haven't seen reported on in the mainstream media. They had these peace negotiations, you know, that they've, they've been going on with the Russians really early on. In the, I mean, they started right away. There was yeah. peace negotiations from day one. Incidentally, um, you know, one of the, I mean, I haven't really actually, although I gave the story up to 2022, I haven't give, sp- spoken about the, the, uh, the ca- causes belly here, right? Like the, you know, why did this war happen? I mean, essentially for, well, a bunch of reasons. Uh, you know, one, this possibility of Ukraine joining NATO, um, which seemed to be very real, like it turns out we now know that it wasn't going to happen. But, but the, I mean, the, the official NATO position was something like, you know, to the Ukrainians, oh, well, allowing the Ukrainians to believe, allowing the world to believe that Ukraine might join NATO, even though there was no intention of it happening. Okay, from a Russian perspective, strategically speaking, they need to attack. If they're ever going to do anything about anything in Ukraine, they need to do it before this happens. Because it, once they join NATO, then that's that means that the Amer- America and Britain and France have have a responsibility to defend Ukraine using nuclear weapons. Right. So that that's one thing that triggered this war happening. Another thing is Zelensky, in the course of the year leading up to this war, said that he was going to forcibly retake the um, Donbass republics. He was going to forcibly reconquer them. And, and Crimea, which Russia had annexed. So he was going to invade what Russia saw as its, its sovereign territory. Obviously, we could you know, certainly say that their, their annexation was illegal or something. But that's, he, he was being incredibly belligerent um, towards the Russians, believing NATO was going to back him, which in a sense it has. Uh, and uh, lastly, that this, it, I think the evidence is there. This um, this attack on the Donbass was happening. Um, the the artillery bombardments had begun prior to the Russian invasion. The Russian invasion actually was launched, and one of the reasons they had these fuck ups in the invasion is it wasn't fully prepared. They were forced to launch it because um, the Ukrainians have massed troops and were going to. Uh, you know, retake Donetsk, you know, and this is one reason why the Russians just, the Russians just walked over the northern border. There was zero defense. There were no Ukrainian soldiers. I mean, Ukraine has the second largest military in Europe after Russia. The Ukraine had no military units on its northern border at all. They were all in the Donbass. I mean, Ukraine did not believe at all that Russia was going to invade. Uh, It was caught by surprise, despite the fact America had been saying for months it was going to. I think this is right, though. I mean, like, in in the sense that uh, I think I think we can we can agree that in, in America's involvement is much more substantial than is than is recognised. In particular, um, the kind of the slow burn of the last sort of ten years or so, where there was just a refusal to acknowledge the deep deep geopolitical dangers of letting it appear as if Ukraine could join, you know, the EU and NATO without there being any kind of problem. And, like, you know, the very, like, logic of the nation-state demands, like, you may, it it may be deeply fucked up, but the logic of the nation-state demands that Russia does what it did, right, if if confronted with that that, uh, situation. And so regardless of the moral status of that move, and I think 
that is really at the root. And people were saying it, you know, people were warning that this rhetoric was going to lead to this in the end. And again, people always forget that really this conflict started in 2014. Um, and that, it's that that slow burn which really needs and no no one gave a fuck about that you know I mean even but it's but it's it's worse because this war is the direct outcome of U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, it, it, the U.S. deliberately provoked this war and they That's wanted right. it to happen, and it's good for them. Yeah, like nothing that has happened so far has been it's it's it, you know. I mean, actually, the only thing that's happened that's bad has been the sanctions. So, the, I mean, the sanctions, the economic side is another, is actually a, a catastrophic American fuck-up. I think they've basically completely um, screwed the pooch economically. They, their sanctions on Russia hurt the West far more than they have Russia. Um, it's just, they've really fucked up. Why is but, that? Because I, why, is, why is that? Well, essentially because why is it fucked fuck them up? Well, I mean, the, the, the obvious reason is Russia is essentially a primary producer that produces things that other countries desperately need, namely oil, gas, urea, uh, other minerals, and uh, wheat. Um, so the world desperately needs Russian primary produce. Russia doesn't need shit from the West because the West no longer produces anything at all anyway, except for luxury goods. Yeah. So all the, the sanctions on Russia are like, oh, you can't have an iPhone anymore. You can't have uh, yeah. an Audi anymore, Right. But you can still buy a perfectly good Chinese-made phone or car, right? And so basically, the, the, and also, it's also the case that since 2014, and specifically the Russian annexation of Crimea, it's actually, I haven't been, I've been remiss in not mentioning this enough because this was, um, you know, very serious kind of thing that happened in 2014 that led to, so the US has had sanctions on Russia since 2014 because of the Crimea thing. So actually, all the low-hanging fruit in terms of, you know, sanctions had already happened. Um, yeah, there's nothing. There's, America has no because Russia's spent eight years being under American sanctions. They've already pivoted to having completely different economic relationships anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, this is you know the sanctions. Sanctions can't do anything to Russia. Um, the the military aid can't redo really it very much to Russia actually directly because um, uh, <laughs> I mean the the military aid they gave the Ukraine over, over the last eight eight years had a, had a big impact because they built up the Ukrainian military. They gave them a lot of training, a lot of weapons. The shipments of weapons that have been happening, you know, this $50 billion of weapons or whatever now they've given the Ukrainians is is basically just like throwing it into the garbage. Let, let me ask another naive question. Why is it? I mean, I think I think I know the answer, but like for the sake of the listeners, why <laughs> why is it that... Asking for a friend. War, yeah, that's right. Asking for a friend. That isn't me. Uh, why is it that this invasion in its broadest possible sense or this conflict is good for America? Well, actually, I mean, actually, I guess ultimately I'd have to, it's not that great. I mean, it's bad. The, the only people actually who are really suffering currently are Ukraine, like the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians, Ukraine is completely fucked. Yeah. It, economically, as I said, was already fucked before this happened. The level of um, fuckitude that Ukraine is now in is is just astronomical. So it's, it, it's, it's in a state of, I mean, it just, it just collapsed. And the, the damage done to Ukraine now is so, I mean, I could, I could list it. There's a demographic, I don't know, catastrophe because so many young people have fled. Yeah. And it, one has to pursue the way refugee politics in the West works. These people will never come back. They'll, they'll now live in the West forever. They'll never come back. So basically every, every woman under 30 in Ukraine is gone. You know, I mean, that's exaggerating, but it's, it's just a complete, yeah. Um, and, and incidentally, mostly from Western Ukraine, the area that's not part of the combat operations. Um, so there's that. The, of course, Russians have directly destroyed like a lot of Ukrainian infrastructure, degraded it. 
in the male population, um, a lot of them have fled as well, even though they're not allowed to. The Ukraine closed the borders for um, you know fighting age men, which they define as any man between eighteen and sixty. Although they've also been recruiting children uh, illegally into there, I, I, well, I've seen evidence to that effect. But yeah, so th- there's the male population is obviously mauled as it would be now. I mean, you know, they're losing up to a thousand men a day uh, in dead uh, on the front lines. Um, and then lastly, the most economically viable or, you know, the, the industry of Ukraine was concentrated in the regions which Russia's captured already or, or will be captured. The east actually, south and east of the country actually is the economically best. And, you know, obviously against opposite of what we normally can see. But the, the west, western Ukraine actually was the most economically backward part of Ukraine, the part that hasn't been conquered and is likely to remain. So even if, if Ukraine retains independence at the end of this process... It will be as the, the the poorest. It'll be poorer than Albania. Like you know, it'll be the poorest country in Europe by, by an absolute mile, and, and depopulated, and God knows what. It's it's bad for Russia because Russia's losing men, primarily. I don't think the loss of material really matters. I think there was a lot of bullishness about about destroying Russian tanks, but Russia deliberately didn't commit a lot of its best technology um, to the front line. So they're losing old tanks. Russia has incredible stockpiles of tanks and munitions. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends how what what we ultimately see in terms of numbers. I mean, actually, probably the worst impact on Russia is the economic commitment that they will have to rebuild the parts of Ukraine that they've taken. Um, they already had to do this with Crimea, and that they'll have to do this in. They, they, I mean, they're trying to rebuild these cities, which they've been have been destroyed in the course of the fighting. Right, so that's probably the biggest liability. In fact, the biggest, <laughs> actually, the smartest thing for America to do would just be to pull the you know let let Russia annex the entire of Ukraine. And then they'll have to deal with that. So you're, um, saying, it's good, you're saying it's good for America, sort of indirectly, insofar as it weakens Russia to whatever yeah. it does. Yeah, in the in the kind of medium term. Yeah, it's it's kind of a medium term win. Look, I mean, actually, I mean, it's not you know good for America as a holistic entity, um, but very good for the section of America that recently recaptured political power. You know, in, in the election in 2020 uh the incoming administration in 2021 uh who you know i mean look I, i'd like to remind the listeners you know of all the rhetoric we had 2016 to 2020 about russia like trump was a was a russian plant like you know this this war against russia was announced like in advance they were going to do it i mean let's not forget you know hunter biden was paid hundreds of thousands of dollars by the ukrainians there's a really direct lash up here between um, current U.S. administration and what's going on, and 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 between the U.S. administration and the security state. So it's really, really important that you know Trump, although he had the you know rank and file loyalty of a lot of the army, the you know reality in in America is that the, the you know the, the um, Department of Defense, the FBI, the CIA, all, all these agencies were super super anti-Trump and have now become really implicated with the Democratic Party that they they regard these people as heroes. Um, so and not to mention the kind of military industrial complex, where where I'm kind of circling around to. It's so, getting spicy now. This is yeah, this but this this the forty five billion dollars which has just been passed, right? So America is in like a situation of economic freefall, like near collapse. You've got to think at this point. Like it's just it's the, the situation is so dire economically and they've just decided to give 45 million dollars well this is basically just a direct grant to Raytheon like it's 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 just to this is money for all these people vested interests you know the war industries and probably most of this money will never get to Ukraine like the length of time it takes to actually you know tool and build 45 billion dollars of weapons 
it's it's just a subsidy for their friends. And that's, yeah. I mean, actually, so it's not even, I mean, actually, you know, really, I should correct myself. It's not not about America winning. It's about, a you know, America as this very divided society, a particular side of American society making itself very rich. I think that's, I think that's a really important point in the sense of, I, I think, one of the contexts that is, will probably clarify with the passage of time, but one of the contexts of this, of the Ukrainian-Russian theatre, if you will, um, I mean, theatre of war, by the way, not, not as in, you know, is within the context of the dying American empire. I, I think. I, I think in the sense, in the sense that what, what we now have, what we now see is, you know, the Democratic Party has been in power for you know over a year now, which is you know ostensibly meant to be the party, at least historically, of the last you know fifty years odd of of you know unions of the working class, um, is now just totally in bed with. Uh, the deep state and the military industrial complex and that we now see that as this society is in literal free fall both economically and I think we can say socio-culturally is that all the money that it's going it's being distributed is not to the people but it's like you know money for the boys which is namely that which actually supports this uh <laughs> deeply sick society which is just essentially weapons manufacturers uh and we could say big pharma but we won't get into that one um yeah. but like i think this, this is this is really the context in which ukraine is the, the ukraine is happening it's, it's 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 we're watching america die really i mean maybe yeah. that's hyperbolic but i think that's right oh, i think that's right and i mean we're talking I mean, if not america um we're watching the death of american supremacy Sure. Um, which yeah. the, the the unipolar wall, and I mean, it, this is obviously unsustainable. It's been unsustainable for a long time, particularly in the face of the rise of China. But what you see now is a strategic alliance, and this is you know what I've said, um, what you know John Mearsheimer said, you know, what it, incredible incredible hubris the Americans to basically at the same time they're saber rattling with China, decide to start a war with Russia. You know, this is this is crazy. Uh, you you need to pick one of these countries to have a war with. But they they can't they can't do that. I mean, this is an important part of Putin's narrative as well, which is, uh, you know, Putin seriously floated the idea of joining NATO. But he also said, you know, Russia can be part of NATO, but you know, like you got to got to accept the fact we're a great power. We have to have like some slightly special status. You can't treat us the same way. You know, we're not the same as like Slovenia, right? And they said, no, no, no. He's got to go to the standard channels. Um, but it, also, they didn't. They didn't really. Uh, look, the bottom line is, America didn't want Russia in NATO. The entire point of NATO has been since day one to destroy Russia. <laughs> that's that's what it was created to do. I mean, obviously the Soviet Union, but that's still the case. Um, America views Russia as a, a threat to its unipolarity because of Russia's sheer size and, and military strength. Yeah. Um, which and this is still the case. Like it's it's I think manifestly the case. I mean, obviously the dominant narrative now is like, oh, Russia's military is severely weakened and and have been shown up to have problems. I mean, I think the exact opposite is the case. I think it's now transparently obvious that the only thing stopping um, the Russian army from marching ultimately to the Atlantic Ocean is nuclear weapons. And that, that was the case the whole way through the Cold War. It was very, very clear that the Soviets could win any conventional conflict. It was only the, the threat of nukes that, that could stop them just taking over Europe. I think yeah. it's also that, you know, uh, it clearly, and, you know, people have said this much, uh, you know, years ago, and this is not my idea at all, but uh, certainly the, the, many of the roots for this problem and indeed the kind of broader uh, story of, of America's imperialism is the refusal to dissolve NATO after the, after the the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, that clearly was setting up setting up a problem in for the, for, for the future. But it's also, I think, 
there's a kind of there's another story here too of the last sort of 30 odd years since the collapse of the Soviet Union of the of America's uh, foreign po- po- foreign policy and also covert foreign policies becoming more and more unhinged like becoming more and I think since we've last started podcast actually I've become much stronger on this because I've read some unhinged books and now I, I I think I always knew the CIA was cooked but I didn't think I quite understood the extent to which they are cooked um and I, you know the con- you know even even the more recent context here is you know we've discovered uh we that you know in the last week it's been it's been shown that the CIA tried to literally kill Julian Assange in London uh you know in, in an embassy I mean these guys are totally disconnected from reality uh and also one thing that you, you becomes clear when you do a bit of a deep dive into the CIA is that they often act without any kind of oversight from from you know the president or, or or sort of the I know this is very obvious to some people but it's it, I think it pays to actually say these things explicitly like one of the I remember I used to have this argument with my dad a lot when I'd be talking about quote unquote conspiracy theorists and he would say things like how could you possibly have this many people in on a secret without someone leaking it and of course what I realized is that a lot of these things things like MK Ultra, three people at the CIA knew about it. Only three and no one else. No, but it's no. now widely known. I mean, what, right. one of the things, I mean, the, 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 I mean, a lot of these things aren't conspiracies. No, that's people, right. People, because tons of people know about them. No, I mean, there's no, it's not a secret that, I mean, there's, okay, so there's certain things like, okay, we could talk about the Kennedy assassination. But, that's you know, well, you know, but I think you need to. I think you need to talk about. I think actually the Kennedy assassination. I mean, like this kind of stuff. Like I tend to think isn't very important, but increasingly I, I I have to kind of concede that it is important. The Kennedy assassination. Um, it, it wasn't quite when the CIA took power in the United States, but it's when they showed they had the power. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and you know, regardless of what role they played in that and, and getting into the ins and outs of that event, by this point in time, it it's not the presidency that controls the security state in the US it's the other way around the USA has a has a genuine a deep state problem i mean and you know i mean a director of the cia in in george bush senior literally became president yeah no um, this is this is exactly i think this is this is probably the, the 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 most uh this is the real for, for me at least this was my red pill in the last 2 years is is realizing that not only is the deep state completely concrete and real it's um completely ascended uh, increasingly so and and it, it takes time to explain some of that, that that is not actually an unhinged take it's actually if you if you if you look at it carefully this is completely correct i mean look at look at this country with Whitlam, but you know oh absolutely i mean i mean this isn't even america but yeah the, no, the american security state doesn't just dominate america via nato and a kind of alliance with junior partners this this is this is this is the ruling power in the world like effectively and i mean of course we have to you know you have to say well look you know they have this very important you know it's, it's bourgeoisie you know like they, they the capital is is also cut in on this which is why why you can have elon musk saying we will coup whoever we want i mean it's uh yeah no that's but that's exactly right there's, there's now this kind of uh and i think you've said this before there's this now this alliance between capital in particular, like modern techno capital and the security stuff. Like it's now. Yeah, well, they're, they're, and they're so it, close. It, it, I mean, it, they're so closely. The, the connections are so close. And they, I mean, they're not new, but yeah, these these people are all, you know, they're, they're all the defense contractors. They're all, and they have to be. You have to be part of that. You have to be doing doing security state work to become a, a significant 
significant capitalist. I mean, it's um. It's good. I like to. I like to end on, on a downbeaten note. Well, I'm genuinely, I mean, genuinely, you know, I'm genuinely, uh, you know, genuinely uh, concerned whether I should put this out there at this point. It's, yeah, it's really so, something else. Uh, it's really, we're not even pretending anymore. <laughs> I mean, look, let's, let's, you know, maybe I should be a little bit more even-handed because, you know, what, what you have in, in uh, Russia actually is a much more overt security state takeover. I mean, sure. Putin was like a KGB captain uh, and, and the FSB, like is it probably even more central you know the fsb i mean it's because they don't have this fbi cia division in, in russia but the the the, 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 the spooks are the, the ones in charge like that's it's it's clear it's not even it's they, they don't but you know this is always one of the advantages of you know russia authoritarian states they're clear about what liberal democracies to simulate about that's right and so you know what you get with russia is is what you see is what you get. It's, it's a, a state that is run by security apparatchiks and is nationalist, and they're they're concerned about the well-being of their nation. And and I mean, you know, but I mean, from that point of view, the United States is it's not even that, and hasn't been. You know, the, the, because of their their global spanning, and not even ambitions. They, they they're a global empire. The United States you know, didn't just have ambitions to control the world. It found itself with the demise of the Soviet Union basically in control of most of the world. And they've been trying to retain that control. It's, you know, the US security state is just this this absolute octopus, you know, and it, it doesn't have that alliance. I mean, I guess it's had this, you know, this is the the kind of alliance they, they kind of could have with Trump. Like I've said this in, in, in the past in print, you know, like they could kind of cope with Trump because okay, like Trump wanted to play hardball with China and do an economic war with China, which upset a lot of people in America. Like you know, upset Apple because they all their components. But actually, you know, the security state could kind of work with that. Okay, we don't like the Chinese, you know, so we'll 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 get him. But you know, ultimately, they'd much rather have this. They wanted war. I mean, very very important. Trump is the most dovish president. Since Carter, the first the first president in decades not to start a war. Yeah, and, this, um, and this, we've talked about this before, but that is that is such an important point. Despite all the rhetoric around him, and despite all of his personal flaws, what the really what's interesting about Trump is that he didn't play ball with the U.S. security state. He didn't start a war, despite his bluster about wanting to do it. Right, like that's that's another matter. And actually, oh, was, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, he, like, he was very clever about it. What he did yeah, in Syria, no, he, actually, which is like he refused to start a war, but he did some did some bombing. You know, he did some. Yeah. He he understood what the minimum was. He needed to needed to expend some munitions, and U.S. troops. So, I mean, did you did you know, James? Let alone you know, any, listeners. The U.S. is still occupying parts of Syria. You know, they have the yeah. moral is outrage it, about Russia invading Ukraine. They're still sovereign state. Syria, Syrian Arab Republic, they're still they're still there on the ground occupying western oil-bearing desert regions. Uh, it's really, I think it's really worth lingering on that fact. I think it's really worth on, on, on a few points. One is because often points like that get get attacked as sort of what a boundary, but I think that's I actually think that's nonsense because I actually think it's that's exactly it's all, it's all an interconnected global issue. But it's, <laughs> like this, but it's it's that that is the the crux of the problem is that what we're really dealing with here is the kind of you know the fickle and totally narcissistic attention of a Western audience, sort of swinging from, from you know, uh, from event to event, while the reality of, you know, the actual concrete situation is that America 
occupies a huge amount of countries at any at any given moment, um, often illegally, and we're being directed in a particular way. In this case, to the to the to, to Ukraine. But what we're actually, as I said, what we're dealing with here is, yeah, the, the sort of the dying gasps of, of an empire desperately trying to hold attention, uh, to, hold, to hold power. Um, and we're all just these kind of, while we might, you know, we change our you know, profiles to, I use the plural very loosely here, um, we change our profiles to Ukrainian flags, all these kinds of things. And, you know... It's an unusual use of the word we to include a collectivity that doesn't actually include the person speaking. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's what I was going for. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the machine just grinds on. I know, that, again, you know, th this is something that we know. But well, it doesn't just grind on. I mean, that is actually... You're actually greasing the machine. Exactly. We are oiling oiling the cogs. And I, but I, and I think it's really worth lingering on that point. I mean, I, I, I really think it is. It's just... I mean, I actually want to say something really out of sequence here because I remembered something I was going to say before about the Russian Kazisbeli in in Ukraine, which was the Minsk Accords. Another thing that I I didn't know about, had to find out researching the, the thing I've written, but tell us about it. But you know, they, they, over Ukraine, I mean, after Russia annexed Crimea, you had this civil war in Ukraine, which ground to a halt. These these relatively small areas of eastern Ukraine controlled by separatists. They had these talks in Minsk in Belarus, which produced two different agreements: Minsk One and Minsk Two. Minsk Two. Um, and, um, you know, the, these uh, Minsk II was a treaty that the Ukrainians agreed to, the Russians agreed to, sponsored by the like, Germans and the French as arbiters within the, uh, the organization of cooperate, economic cooperation in Europe, whatever it's called. And it, the Ukrainians were supposed to do all this stuff that they didn't do. I mean, this is another reason like the, the war has happened and, and became inevitable because the, the Ukrainians had like from 2015 to 2022 to implement they, the, the idea was that um, the, the separatists would lay down their arms, they'd peacefully come back inside Ukraine in return for Ukraine granting rather autonomy to its regions and having a federal structure that would allow these regions to determine their own language policy. So in Russian-speaking regions, they would continue to use the Russian language. And Ukraine wouldn't do it. Um, they just didn't move to implement it. In fact, they did the exact opposite. They were tooling up for a war, right? Again, like so th th this is a treaty they had with the Russians. They just weren't implementing and, you know, the, the reason they didn't do that, incidentally, because, you know, Zelensky, when he was elected, was a peace candidate who was going to implement all this stuff. The reason he didn't do it is because if he did it, he would be shot in the back of the head. And I was about to say this before earlier, and I can't remember what distracted me, but they had these peace talks early on where one of, within like two weeks of the war starting, one of the negotiators on the Ukrainian side was shot in the back of the head by the Ukrainians, Right. Because, oh, in, that I mean, in that meeting, not right? not in the meeting, but like when he got out of the meeting with the Russians, they just they, the guy was literally ex summarily executed for God knows what. I guess not taking a hard enough line in the negotiations, like giving an inch of ground. Like that's that's the Ukraine that we're dealing with, right? That that's what this country is. It's it's not. Um, I mean, look, you know, <laughs> again, no illusions about Russia. I mean, what happens to you admittedly in Russia is not quite as bad as that, but like, yeah, like there's there's been a lot of repercussions in russia within the fsb so the spy services clearly didn't do a good job with preparing the ground for the russian invasion there have been a lot of people who've been um, reassigned maybe there's been some arrests like some people may may be gulagged uh, and so yeah i'm not i'm not saying like you know russia is a liberal democracy or something like that but the point i want to make about that is the extent to which like where's that in the media yeah. like where where is the like the fact that Zelensky this guy is he's he's got a gun to his head and coke up his nose he's the guy is just a total placeman he's 
a Russian speaker from the south of Ukraine has no investment in this this war, and he's he's like literally a paid television actor who's been put into this position. Sorry, ranting. Don't apologize. You were on a completely different. Uh, no, never apologize. I was just I was just reminded of something when it first when this when the war first started. I was talking to a friend of mine and a and a, and a listener of the pod who said who was uh, I think I I might have been talking about some of your spicy takes. I can't remember, but he said to me, and I was really struck by this. He said to me. Sometimes the situation is just good and bad. You know, sometimes it's clear cut. And I thought about this for a very long time. And I think, and I think it's, I think that is not true. <laughs> I think that, I think that if things are never as, I mean, I think, I know we, we, we argue this a lot, you know, it's, you know it's that a lot of the time things are, are more complicated than they appear. But I'm tempted to go further than this and say things are never as simple as good and bad. And I think this is just yet another the more in which it's depicted as a clear-cut case of, you know, say, invasion versus freedom, invasion versus autonomy, you know, whatever, um, you know, the rights of the nation-state to self-actualise, uh, the more I'm convinced that, again, not saying that either side is better than the other, whatever, um, but, again, that there is just so many moving parts and the broader historical context in which it's all happening just makes it, so difficult to uh, get a grasp of, and the, and the more that's the case, the, the the less the media will acknowledge that. So I'm just, I'm just sort of I'm really just. I, I I I mean I, I dislike the general take you're making. Although I mean, it, it seems to me in this conflict, if you were going to have a good and evil amateur, it would be the reverse of what most people have on it. Well, I thought that you might uh, say. That. So I, you I, know, I, I thought I, you might say that. But you know, because both sides do present themselves in a, in a good and evil struggle. Yeah, no, they do, uh, and and I think there there are, but you know, as in, in general, like with this conflict, I think the the Russian narrative is closer to the truth than the Ukrainian narrative. So oh, I, yeah, I, but that's I, sorry. No, I I just maybe this is just moral cowardice on my behalf, but I, I just can't say either way. But I think no. it's also like this is this is in some ways this is also a reflection about of us. And so you're you're more of a you're a more of a binary person than me. I think which is which has <laughs> which has positive, binary confirmed. <laughs> um, as, but that's also just me that perhaps I'm just incapable in certain situations of actually having a position. Maybe that's a maybe that's something that's a good thing. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just like this bad. Yeah. No. 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 Look. I mean, I think that's probably a fair characterization of our personalities or whatever. And of course, I believe that you know the entire of yeah. Like I, I believe fundamentally from a religious point of view that there is a like a drama of good versus evil sure. subtends everything, which presumably you don't. But uh, so that's like at a philosophical level, I have a real problem with the idea that there's not genuine good and genuine evil. Now, I mean, uh, this you know these are these are opinions that I develop latterly, but I would have absolutely disagreed with before. I mean, philosophically, what worries me about this kind of idea of, the, you know, once you get into, the, like, things are always more complicated, that's true, but it's it's the Derrida move, and at that point it just, you know, it just everything kind of dissolves, because, you know, everything is infinitely yeah. different to everything else. You just go, well, you know, okay, this side, you know, there's some bad, you know, people are, people are bad on either side of this conflict, and which is true. Of course it's true, but but that, that's just banal. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't um, once you get to that point, you just can't say anything about anything anymore. No, I think that's but, that's exactly right, and I think that's that's the tension here. Is that what I'm trying to? I'm trying to articulate some kind of inability to come, uh, inability to sort of come to terms with certain historical moments, while also avoiding that Derrida move, which is to say, well, you can't make anything, you can't say anything about anything, which I, I want to resist at all costs. Um, so it's hard to know what I'm actually trying to say here. 
but perhaps it's actually just a simpler point about the media, which is just to say that uh, it's just so striking the the level of banality that is what we're presented with by the media. You know, it's what you said, you know, none of this is in the media. None of the complexity of this picture is put in the media, which is just so, so vital for this, for this, for something like this, where there are so many moving parts and the, and sort of the, the, the ambiguity of the situation is part of it, but it's never presented to the media. And there's obviously reasons for that, but it's just, again, it's worth lingering on. Yeah, no, that's fair, obviously. But maybe it's, yeah, maybe you're right to say, like, because, I, I mean, on the one hand, on a philosophical level, I do want to insist that there's, there's good and bad, like, absolutely. So I don't think it was, it's not, it's not the Derrida point, which is to say, look, there are, you know, where we, where we end up not being able to pass judgment on any kind of moment in history, because that's clearly really, really dangerous and kind of wishy-washy nonsense. Um, well, I think there's, I think there are factual problems with the Ukrainian case. I think like it's it's false. I mean, it, we can I don't know. It's, I guess it's dangerous tying up um, good and bad to truth and falsehood. But I mean, there's there's one way in which I want to I want to really agree with what you're saying, and it's it's going back to this fog of war thing, which is you know I have this I have like kind of tentative takes about what's happening on the ground, but getting information about what's happening on the ground is is so hard. And basically, the you know you just have the, the narratives you get from either side are just absolutely mutually exclusive. You know uh, uh, yeah. that you know. There's a narrative. There's a narrative that says, says, you know, the the um, and this is the standard one in the media that the Russians are are killing, you know, lots of Ukraine civilians and so on. And the Ukrainians just don't say that's true. And and of course, I've seen this. You know, you've seen this narrative in, in wars before. I mean, you know, this is you know, um, this is the, the American narrative in their wars. They say, you know, okay, you know, like in the invasion of Iraq, which you're probably too young to remember, but you know, this this 1990, and you know, you had this. Um, when when we had this war and it was all on the TV about the smart bombs and as if there were no civilian casualties and the Iraqis said, "Oh, you've just the Americans have bombed a bomb shelter and killed thousands of people or whatever it was." And the Americans said, "No, we didn't." And we all thought, "Oh, the stupid lying Iraqis," but of course it was true and the Americans did do it. And that you know, no bombs are really that smart. And the Americans in fact like killed lots of people in Iraq and on many occasions. And so I, I don't know how to. I mean, basically any of this stuff. Like I'm I'm in a in a kind of um, a super position, right? Because I don't. I don't actually, I don't know, I don't know, you know, where, when the truth will out about this, you know, this kind of like what it, what is really happening, who's doing all the war crimes. I mean, the t- but, I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the only verified instances of war crimes that aren't contestable at all are the Ukrainians because they, they've been filming themselves doing them very proudly, you know. But then again, that's very anecdotal. Like, it's like, okay, here's some instances of war crimes. Does that mean that the overall picture is? Uh, but I'm still tempted to say that the the entire entire kind of Ukrainian case is, Build on, I mean, claims that you, if you actually believe them, bad, like bad claims, like what are you, okay, it's okay to um, forcibly, you know, ethnically cleanse and or forcibly change the language use in in like half of Ukraine to Ukrainian. Like, is that, because that's what, that's what the Ukrainian like official government, like that's what they in effect are actually doing and want. Well, I think they, they've kind of- banned every opposition political party. They, I mean, that's bad, right? So. Yeah. So this comes back to what, but this comes back to the, my original point is that I think a lot of the judgments about the conflict are based on incomplete facts. That is, that lot, most people who have, I, I'm, I'm trying to avoid the using the term normies, but here we are. You know, most normies who have a position on Ukraine would not know most of the uh, relevant facts about the conflict. Yeah, I mean, I must say, in order to make a judgment, 
I haven't had conversations with Norway. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, Ukraine, I guess. I think that's, what, that's an important part of the puzzle, I think. Because yeah, that is my, assu- my assumption is like, you know, the, the, the standard, um, you know, blue and yellow flag account on Facebook is they have just read what they saw in the paper and they believe yeah. that to be true, it's which is, is quite, a, in a sense, extraordinary for me in this day and age that anyone does that. It's a clear-cut, this point, it's a clear-cut story of, you know, one, one aggressive neighbour invading another. Yeah, because they want um, – what what, what's he doing? Why is he doing – I mean, actually, uh, there was quite a prominent um, narrative in, in the early parts of the, the um, war. But Putin was literally insane. Yeah, and they kind of needed to that, run that because that what he was doing just did, what he was doing just didn't didn't make any sense. There was no unless you agree unless you understood unless you thought what he was what his reasons. I mean, which also weren't reported. Like if you, I mean, there was all this thing about how his he gave this rambling speech. They didn't talk about the context because it lasted. For, it was really a kind of masterful speech where he kind of summarized the entire history of the conflict. And of course, you know, I take it I don't know of anyone else who like watched the entire thing who isn't like a Russian bot or whatever, but. There's no there's no counter narrative given. Putin's done it why? Because he's crazy, yeah, or that he's Hitler. Although that that's a different thing. Because I mean, Hitler, I guess, kind of a little bit unhinged. But I mean, he had like a pretty clear plan, like yeah, maybe a crazy say, plan. Can't say he didn't have a plan. No, but he he had re- everything he did. Like although like there was a certain kind of apocalyptic insanity behind it. Like it was all, you know, it was all set out like in advance what he was going to do, why he did it. Like it wasn't. Um, yeah, Putin. I mean, there's 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 a bunch of really simple reasons. I mean, you know, it's, but it's yeah, national security, like geopolitics, like it's you know, even if even if it's totally, I guess the worst you could say is is you know, um, Putin's just acting in a totally self interested way as a nationalist to do what's in Russia's interests. That would be like the the bad side account. But I don't. But that's just. I mean, it's not that's not accurate. I mean, I think in many ways he's he's really tried to avoid this war happening. Like, I mean, I guess he could have, I mean, what's the alternative that Putin doesn't, doesn't do anything in Ukraine, just lets it, let, lets it happen. I guess he could have done that. But that, it strikes me as, I mean, is that, you know, I don't know, this, when, when, and never mind kind of intervening on behalf of other people, but like, these are literally like, you're going to just stand by and watch Russians be ethnically cleansed, massacred. That would have been the, the thing Putin would have done, like by not invading. Yeah, I, I mean, he already I, did do that, right? Because yeah, he did it for a long time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the level of Russian, obviously, the Russian, the Russian state agencies are probably, you know, giving some kind of aid to um, the rebels in in Ukraine during the the war that started in 2014. But you know, so were the Americans to the other side. Uh, you know, it's not. But yeah, I don't. I mean, as uh, yeah, I think the the strongest criticism of Putin would be he should have invaded in 2014, and not just about Crimea, but the entire country. And uh, you know, I think the standard narrative about that is that he um, he couldn't do it because of the uh, Russia was very vulnerable to sanctions in 2014 and didn't have the agreements with China. I mean, it more or less had an explicit agreement with China. In retrospect, you can see this is what it was an explicit agreement was like: Russia's going to invade Ukraine and China's going to back them. Um, but he needed to get that in place to do it. And uh, I guess that's sensible strategically. I guess don't go swimming on Ukrainian beaches. <laughs> that's that is the that is the lesson that is the lesson yeah. people it's interesting actually like you know because you know they they say not to do that but what else has ukraine been doing <laughs> oh. oh boy if 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 the ukrainian government cared about people in ukraine they, they would surrender 
I mean, they have a narrative that the Russians will do genocide. are going to genocide them. I mean, this is what's being said. I mean, you know, there's a there's a good rule of thumb really that everything that Ukrainians say is just projection. The Russians. I mean, it depends what you mean by genocide. If you say it would be the most abstract version of genocide. Yeah. Certainly, continuing to arm the conflict as as the West is doing is well. It's yeah. Yeah, it's just it's, it's designed to prolong it and kill kill Ukraine. It's I mean, morally look, okay. it's morally indefensible. But there's definitely, I think the calculus there, maybe this is giving too much credit to the Americans, but I think the calculus there is Russia will win, Russia will incorporate Ukraine into Russia, and the more Ukrainians that are killed, the better, because ultimately Ukrainians are Russians, and the more of them that are dead, the better. So actually, you know, the losses, as I said before, I mean, the losses that are happening to Russia aren't so much being incurred directly on what is now the territory of Russia, but on the future territory of Russia. Yes, you know, Russia may get Ukraine, but it will be scorched earth, the fields will be salted, the people will be dead, the bridges will be destroyed. That seems like a, 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 a galaxy brain CIA uh, take, but I like it. It's probably yeah. right. The, this was like the leitmotif I was constantly arguing about, or at least about war in, in biopolitical imperialism, a book I wrote about international relations. But I mean, my, my argument there is not so much this is like the deliberate strategy of the West, but just they 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 just keep allowing this to happen, right? Because they don't, that's like, that's not a bad outcome for them. They have no reason to prevent that happening. No, it's just like basic, the destruction basic. of a country like Iraq or Afghanistan is like, that's great. Like, you know, then if they're not going to be on our side, it's just like they can be just absolutely. It's just destroyed. a logic by which they operate, isn't it? It's a kind of passivity, a kind of an, an, an it's, a, it's, a, it's a perfectly sensible military strategic logic, but yeah. it now it now hides behind humanitarianism because you know historically you would literally salt the fields and leave scorched. No, earth that's and, right. That's you know, exactly but now right. they you can't do that on on purpose. You just do it anyway and claim it was all accidental. I think they've all stopped there. <laughs> I've said far, 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 far too much. Right, that's we're, we're we're carrying on with the tradition. What are we going to put, put hate forest at the end? Absolutely. Try and have both sides of the issue. That's right. We like to we like to offer uh, you know a balanced account.